walk home. Join good friends Amy, Aaron, and Kate as they take a deep dive into the world of sugar addiction. Three women who found the strength to tackle their own addiction through community, courage, and commitment. Each episode will tackle a new subject, offering a little guidance and inspiration as you take your own walk home back from the edge of addiction. Welcome to everybody. Welcome, Kate and Amy. My name is Erin, and I am a lifelong sugar addict, but did not realize it until just about 18 months ago. Um, So today we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, in recovery, we talk about staying in the moment. We don't want a future trip and think too much about the future because as addicts, I at least tend to awfulize and catastrophize everything. We don't want to spend a lot of time in the past and regrets and would-haves and should-haves and could-haves. It's never a good place to live either. We try to stay in the present moment. However, today we are going to take a little look back. I think it's important to take a look in the in the rearview mirror, even briefly, how far have we come is one question we can ask. Today, though, what we're going to do is we're going to look in the past a little bit and what would we tell our younger selves now that we are currently where we are, striving for what we're striving, having the knowledge that we have, what are some things that we would tell our younger selves that may have made our journey easier up until this point. And we can't change that, but maybe we can make an an impact for other people or for ourselves, remind ourselves what we need to know even now going forward. So uh, welcome, Kate. Hi, thanks, Erin. It's great to be here. I love this topic. Um, My name's Kate. And I'm a sugar addiction recovery coach and uh, I'm also a relapse prevention specialist and I live right here in the UK. And I was racking my brains this morning trying to think of of what I would really want to tell my younger self in relation to, to the addiction. And the first thing that I came up with was it sounds quite simple, but actually sugar addiction really controlled my life for over 40 years. So what I would have liked to have been able to tell my younger self is that this eating disorder, this compulsive eating, this urge to eat, these cravings, it's actually a food addiction and it should be treated as an addiction. So by that, I mean that the disease of addiction is a biological condition that manifests in our brain. It's treatable and it's chronic and it can be managed but never cured. Had I known these bits of information and been able to learn how to manage the condition and to accept it as a medical condition, life, I think, would have been completely different. And not that I'm rejecting or making any comment on how life actually played out, because I firmly believe that life plays out the way it's meant to play out. But had I had this piece of knowledge, life would have been different. Easier? Who knows? But I never did know, really, until, where are we, about two and a half years ago, that this was a medical condition, that everything I was experiencing with yo-yo dieting, with the compulsive eating, with the out-of-control cravings, with the inability to control impulses, were actually symptoms of the disease of addiction. So that would be the first thing that I would have liked to have been able to tell my younger self. 
am Amy. Hello, an addict in recovery. And um, Kate, I feel like that was that's exactly what I was thinking um, about telling my younger self. And I'll just add to it. Um, so many times, I guess in my 20s, I realized sugar was addictive, but not necessarily understanding the word addiction and recovery, although I did know that sugar was addicting. So what I would do was I would stop the sugar, not the flour, because I didn't really know. Um, sometimes I did stop the flour, but um, you know, as I got older and learned a little more, but in the beginning I didn't. And I would enter these months or however long um, sugar-free, and sometimes it would be actually easy where I wouldn't create the sugar because once you get past the first couple of days, it's not, sometimes it's not an issue, you know, especially in the beginning when you're doing this, when your brain isn't wired and knows that, you know, trying to get you back, you know, it's like, I feel like at this point I've gotten on and off the sugar so many times that I feel like my brain almost pushes me back to the sugar. So it's harder now because it's almost like I made that pathway or that groove in my brain. But back then before all of this, I felt it was a lot easier to stay off the sugar and for longer periods of time. And I remember thinking during those periods, what is this? Like, what's going on with me? Does this mean like I'm never going to want to eat that stuff again? Does this mean I'm going to stay in this one certain size of clothing and I don't have to do the whole, you know, jumping through all my sizes and trying to figure out where to put all my clothes because I have so many different sizes. And I just wasn't able to understand at that point because I didn't know about addiction and recovery. So it was so confusing going through that. I mean, it was wonderful at the times that I did stay off sugar. I felt so much better. Um, I felt so much healthier, but I didn't really understand what was going on that if I just have a little slip, a slip could lead me back into a mess again, a mess in the sugar. I didn't have the tools. I didn't have any skills because I wasn't in recovery. I didn't even know there was recovery for sugar addiction at that point. So maybe I possibly would have told myself there's a place you can go to get help, you know, but I didn't know that. Um, and I never really thought to learn from my mistakes as we're all learning from our mistakes now. I, that wasn't even a thought that I had, you know, all of a sudden I'd be back in the food and it wasn't a question of how did I get back in the food? What did I do? What could I do differently next time? It was just back in the food until the next time I have the motivation to do this again. So I think I would explain addiction and recovery to my younger self and not go on and off sugar so many times had I known then what I know now. Because like I said, I did know the word addiction, but had not a clue until just a few years ago that there's actually help for this, like that there's actually help for sugar addiction. And I think I said it in the first podcast that the only way I found that out was by watching a TV show where somebody showed up in a, a food anonymous type of program. And I said, oh, is this like really a thing? I thought this was just for drugs. And then I looked it up and found this really is a, <laughs> this really is a place I can go. And that's when I started going to OA and that took me to the next group and to eventually Sugar X, where I met you both. And um, and that's, yeah, I would have just taught myself what, what to do, you know, and just about recovery. And no, no surprise that I'm, I'm right there with both of you that uh, 
the first thing I would say to my younger self is this is an addiction so often and still today it's it's thought about the substance the alcohol the drug the food the sugar the substance itself and when with that it was like okay well there's this this substance that i need to avoid if i can just avoid the substance i'll be fine like well, i couldn't avoid it i couldn't avoid the sugar and so i just internalized all that into myself and this idea that i must be this bad person i can't i don't have willpower i'm totally weak forget the fact that you know i've made it through med school i've made it through a ton of college i've you know been successful at every other thing i've really tried in my life for the most part except when it came to the food so by focusing on this fact that it's the substance that's the problem well then there's something wrong with me that i can't overcome this substance flip that on its head that it's the disease of addiction that's the problem and it applies to lots of different substances it applies to lots of different behaviors they're all outlets of the same disease. And my aha moment was uh, watching a a Sugar X Global Crush Your Cravings five-day challenge and the very first day when they say, it's not your fault. And that is what just blew me away. I'd had somebody in my life telling me for a long time, you have a sugar addiction. And I didn't want to face that because to me, that just meant I was a bad person. Um, I was not strong. I was weak. And uh, the biggest message that I've I've walked away with is this idea that I am not a bad person trying to be good. I am a sick person trying to be well. And I love that phrase because it's so true. I really, it's an illness. It's a disease, like you say, Kate, um, which means that there's some treatment there behind it. And no wonder I wasn't having any success. I was attacking the wrong problem. I was attacking my moral uprightness. I was attacking my my strength and constitution. Um, wouldn't didn't have anything to do with that. I was ridiculously persistent and resilient. Like you said, I'm with you. I had so many different size clothes from all the times I lost weight and then I'd gain it back. I'd lose more and then I'd gain more. And you know, you name a size, I have it in my closet or I had it in my closet. Um, because I never knew where I was going to be. I never gave up. That's not weak. That's not a bad person. I kept trying, but I wasn't facing it in the right way. And so that idea of what is addiction was huge. It was huge to realize that it's a brain pathway. I'm I'm attacking this in a, in a way that is never going to work. I'm attacking this in a way that I'll diet and then I'll be fine the addiction doesn't go away. And when I diet and restrict, um, it it just, then when I go back to all that food, I end up just wanting more. Um, and I think I'll add to that. I think, you know, food is such an interesting thing. No one's going to say, well, you should have to an alcoholic, you should have just a little bit of alcohol, or you should have just a little bit of heroin. You know, if you totally take it out of your life, you're just going to binge on it then later. Food is such a different entity because we have to eat three times a day. But that that dealing with it as an addiction and being completely abstinent with this idea that this is my life that I'm dealing with one day at a time, but it is the rest of my life, each of those days, um, is huge for me. I don't feel the need then to go binge later when I'm 
off recovery because I'm never going to be off recovery. This is a lifelong thing that I have to deal with every single day. So yeah, I'm not surprised that our first things that we came up with is is that moment of of addiction. And that's where that awareness comes in. Once we know what we're dealing with, then we can move forward with a, a much more accurate and sustainable and effective plan. It's so powerful hearing that because it really is that up to that point, we have no understanding that there is an underlying cause that's driving all these behaviors. And I think the second thing I would like to have been able to tell my younger self, the younger self who was caught up with diet clubs, with swimming pills, with swimming clubs, with different programs, with different weight loss techniques, that the foods that you are being told to eat by the dietitians, by the doctors, by the government, um, all the eating disorder therapists are actually the foods that are causing the problem. And by that, I mean that clubs like um, Slimming World in the UK and clubs like Weight Watchers in the UK create a lot of processed food in boxes and packets and cartons. In fact, I really remember a vivid memory of going into Weight Watchers and lined up at the back of the hall were all these sweets and packages of crackers and crisps and all sorts of different products that you could buy that were going to sustain us, going to sustain me over the week. Well, I am a person with the disease of addiction, a person of more. So I would faithfully rock up to the table, spend my money on all these branded products, go through the meeting, get into my car after the meeting and consume probably 90 to 95 percent of those products on the way home and still want more. The food they were telling me to eat was driving my addiction because it contained sugar substitutes, even if it didn't contain sugar, it contained fruit, um, it contained flour, and it, it just contained stuff that was guaranteed to drive my addiction. And even the government, um, things like the Eat Well plate, where they break down the amount of carbs and protein and everything that you're supposed to eat, work contrary to the best food plan, the best way of eating to calm people who are struggling with the disease of addiction, which is to follow a ketogenic um, diet plan, whatever that looks like for you, but to base the diet around good protein, good healthy fats, and very low levels of carbohydrates. But that's virtually the opposite for what I was being told to eat. Even the GP would suggest eating these foods. All of it was driving the addiction. So no matter how hard I tried, if I followed the advice of these clubs, which ultimately are business models that work with a revolving door policy, they know, basically, I believe, that they're creating addiction. And they know that you're never going to reach your goal weight and stay there if you continue to consume these products. And so you might hit your goal weight, but you're not going to maintain it and you'll end up coming back through the doors and joining their club again and continuing to pay the fees. That's the way the model works. So I think it's important. It was an important piece of learning and it took me over 40 years to realise that the foods I was being told to eat by these groups, these people in authority that I listened to and respected were actually driving the disease of addiction in me. 
Very well said, Kate, <laughs> beautifully spoken. Um, I was going to say the same thing and I <laughs> will probably all be saying the same thing. Um, so I won't really get into it because I'd say exactly what you just said. And I'm just going to add to it that I remember my first program like that was in 11th grade. So I had this awareness and begged my mom and I got, I had a friend on board who I'm still friends with to this day, but I'm um, in 11th grade. We started going through a program just like that. And exactly the same thing happens to me. And, um, and just like Aaron said, that was another point I was going to make that I learned recently. Um, actually, um, I think in, jo in Joan Eflin's group that it's not our fault at all. And if I could have explained that to myself, it would have helped me feel so much better about myself with the willpower and that I'm not failing, that there is nothing wrong with me. It's that manufacturers are trying to get you addicted. They make food and they make products. I think it's called the bliss point with enough, a certain amount of sugar, fat, and salt where it hits this bliss point in your brain, your brain lights up and they know they have you. You know, they, I think that some products they put on the shelves they test beforehand and make sure it has all those addictive properties in just that right amount to addict our brains. And then it goes on the shelves. So it's not our fault, but I did not know that either. So both of you, I was just, <laughs> I'm just repeating what you both said, because that's exactly what I would have told my younger self, because I mean, how many years did we live feeling so awful that we were just such failures that there was something wrong with us, right? And that... That really, you know, I just feel like it really, it shaped a little bit of who I was back then. And that's not, that's not such a positive thing. So I wish I had known all of this years ago, but I'm glad we're all here now learning it, you know, and we're able to share it. Yeah, I wonder what the future is going to look like for sure, because we live in, in such a, a society of packages and, um, bags and boxes and and it's just you read the ingredients and you you know even bread you look at bread and there's 30 ingredients for bread when there should be four it should be water flour yeast and salt that should be bread and bread you find you know and it has to travel it has to keep all of those things we've just gotten away from this idea that that real food is is the way to go i remember my first program was eighth grade amy so i'm with you that's it's it gets to us early you know um my daughter would go to school and and she was embarrassed by her lunch of you know with carrots and she'd trade her carrots for for different bags of fluorescent orange crunchy sticks <laughs> and uh you know I, and she was just she was the odd person out for having real food. Like I said in the previous podcast, I was the weird for bringing oranges after a soccer game instead of something in a in a packet, you know. So it my what I would tell myself is very similar in that, you know, just what that food really is, you know, that it well, what that food like substance really is. I would turn to these sugar and grain foods to self-medicate basically anxiety depression all of these you know low self-esteem negative self-talk um, those things would kind of drive me to have 
wanting to feel better. And I would feel better if I had that sugar or that grain. I've noticed over time that that feel better moment is getting shorter and shorter. And it got to the point where I would be in the middle of eating it and I would start to feel bad again, even in the middle of eating it. And I think that's because I I realized that it really had so much to do with those foods that weren't treating my anxiety and depression. They were actually causing and worsening my anxiety and depression. That was been that has been one of my biggest revelations um, in recovery and living a life that is more abstinent. I'm not perfect. Uh, I was really perfect for many months, and then it's been a struggle for a few months. But, you know, when I can count on how many times on my hand I've had sugar in the last five months when before I lost count by about 9 a.m. So I'm doing better than I was before. Um, So I really realize now when I have those foods, what an impact it makes in my mental health, in my anxiety and in my depression. And and that just blows me away. In fact, I am, you know, I'm a pediatrician and I, I saw this family recently, and they were talking about how the girl is really struggling uh, with some anger issues. And the way the mom described it was anger outside of proportion to the situation. And I, it just, something really hit me in my heart because I thought, wow, that's, that's me. I would have these blowups and these reactions to things that were way outside of the proportion. So I went down the the avenue of food and and we talked about it a little bit and I just shared my experience that I'm I'm blown away that when I don't eat sugar I can handle life better and I don't react as strongly and it got mom thinking and she said yeah candy is the one thing that she will steal um which made me think of me and my youth and my adult life and um you know, all the sneaking. Once I had my own money, I didn't have to steal it, but I sure as heck went to sneak mode in order to get it and eat it by myself and put the garbage on the bottom of the garbage pan, garbage bin, I guess you would call it, Kate. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, stuff everything on top of it so nobody would know. I mean, it just drove all of these crazy making behaviors and the chaos in my brain is so much quieter when I don't have sugar and when I don't have flowers. Um, blows me away that those foods were causing so much of the chaos because of course that's what I was was going to to try to calm the chaos and it worked ever so briefly and I never put it together that then the increase in chaos later really was that food and the withdrawal and the cravings and needing more um and so yeah I think I would I would tell my younger self eat real food and stay away from packages and boxes and bags. Um, It's just not in my best interest. That's beautiful. There's a saying in the UK, eat, meet, sleep, repeat. (laughs) It seems to be a really good mantra. Well, there's a bit more to it than that. But another thing I think I tell my younger self is this, and it makes me laugh thinking about it. It's not funny because I spent so many years trying to do this, that moderation and intuitive eating are impossible for you, my dear. And that's okay. (laughs) 
But, you know, for years, you know, you read about intuitive eating, it sounds, oh, well, I think I'm an intuitive person. I think I might be able to to do this intuitive eating thing. It sounds great. You know, people like, um, there's a writer, Janine Roth, who's really wrapped up in, in intuitive eating. And I remember she um, wrote somewhere about how to use this intuitive eating was to if you wanted to eat something like, you know, those brightly coloured um, sweets, the M&Ms, all those bright popping colours and all the rest of it, to take a pillowcase and fill it with <laughs> M&Ms, as many as you wanted, so the entire pillowcase was full, and just eat them. Just eat them because you'd get to a place where you could cut off, where your intuition would kick in and it was, <laughs> so, you know, you you not you actually don't want it, but carry on eating until you reach that point where you where you know, no, I actually don't want to do this anymore. Well, I never actually tried it, but I just thought, you know, this concept of being broken and there's something wrong with me. So I just thought, I'm not going to have an off switch. I don't have an off switch. I know that I will not actually be able to stop. I'll probably eat the entire contents of that pillowcase, then the pillowcase, and anything that wasn't nailed to the floor in the vicinity would have been inhaled too at the same time. It's just not, it's not possible with the disease of addiction because we lose the ability to um control those impulses and to get up into those parts of the brain around the prefrontal cortex the parts where we can rationalize and justify and and explain what's going on and make those kinds of decisions um around food but when we're in active addiction and caught up in the throes of that dopamine reward pathway and that basic limbic structure where we're reacting at base levels on fight or fight or fear or freeze or fawn or whatever it is you know it's it's just not possible and it's not realistic and it's just another way to get a really big stick and beat yourself over the back with it for not being good enough not being enough to be able to follow this magical thinking, um, this magical idea or concept of intuitive eating. And the same goes with moderation. You know, my experience as a person struggling with the disease of addiction, one, I mean, I don't even know what that looks like. Well, I know what it looks like, but I, you know, if I was starting on something, I couldn't stop until I finished the packet. I couldn't, you know, it's remembering it. I'm sort of laughing, but not laughing. It's like having a slice of cake. No, you know, I I actually couldn't sleep in bed until that cake had gone in whatever fashion that needed to be. So, you know, and I could go on and I know each of us and all of us who struggle with the disease of addiction have stories that are similar to this. The key piece of knowledge I wish I could have passed on to my younger self with whatever you're doing around intuitive eating or trying to moderate, just stop it because it's never going to work. I think we all wish we could intuitively eat, but we probably all tried it. Um, And some people can do it and they may not be the people who have the addict brain. So I guess just hearing what you just said, listening to what you just said, um, I might've told my younger self, we're all so individual and just because the next person can do something doesn't mean you can, because we're all made so differently. So not to really look and focus on anybody else, but yourself, because there are things, you know, you can do and um, not, not, not everybody can do what we can do and we can't do what they can do. So I think I would have pointed that out because I think that was another thing that I would feel like a failure that other people could do things around food 
that I couldn't. And so then I would try what they were doing and I could just never understand why that wouldn't work for me. And um, yeah, intuitive eating was was something I dreamed I could do, <laughs> but I couldn't do that. Yeah. So I think I would have ex explained that to my younger self and said, just keep my eyes on my own self and find a group perhaps that is right there with you that has the same struggles and can understand you rather than looking at just those random people out there in the world or even your friends or even your family, you know, don't look at what they're doing because they might not be in addiction like you are. So they can do those things and that's why they do it easily, but you're made a little bit differently. So I would have, I think, made myself feel a little bit better about that. Yeah, exactly. But I uh, was talking about, I was thinking about this idea that I would tell myself that I can't do it alone. Um, but the flip side of that is I also have to make sure I do it with the right people um, because, it, you know, just being in, in situations or support groups or even talking to friends and family who, who don't understand that addict side of it, certainly before I ever did, especially, that's not necessarily going to help me. But when I'm in the right group with a bunch of other addicts, and it doesn't matter where I am, whether I'm with a bunch of sugar addicts, whether I'm with you know, people whose substances are drugs, people whose behaviors are gambling, you know, it doesn't matter because it's all that same process. But when I'm with people that know that process of I want to stop. Maybe I can stop, but I can't stay stopped and aren't talking about things like the intuitive eating and moderation and, and those things, but really looking at the heart of the brain pathway and then what comes from it. Um, I am blown away by how much fuller my life is in recovery and it goes well beyond abstinence and avoiding the sugar and the flowers that avoiding the substance gives my brain some clarity, gives my um, monkey mind a little peace and calm, but it's the work and recovery that just really fills my soul and nourishes my soul. And it's being around other people that are willing to look deep inside themselves. Uh, what What drives us to even need to feel better, right? The addiction is picking up a substance or performing be a behavior with the goal in mind of changing how we feel. And um, that's great. And I can stop the substance, but I still have to deal with why I want to change how I'm feeling. And so that's difficult to do alone. I mean, it, it's one thing to be honest with others. It's very difficult to be honest with myself and I find that when I'm in a community of people who are other addicts and they understand my dilemmas, my husband would say all the time, I, I don't get, you want to do these things and then you're in the middle of doing them and you're crying and you're talking about what a bad person you are and you're totally beating yourself up because I just don't get it. And he wants to be supportive and he's trying to help me, but he doesn't understand that. He doesn't understand that feeling a pull to something that you know is bad for you, that you know is going to make you feel bad, and then just feeling terrible about yourself after those results happen. Um, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me, and, and I live it. 
So being around other people is key. I need other people to call out when I'm using all of my cognitive distortions, when I'm minimizing, when I'm blaming, when I'm justifying and rationalizing. They need to call out, you know, that doesn't sound so much like you. That sounds like your addict brain trying to get you to do something that I've heard you say in the past you don't want to do. And I've seen you in the past not feel good after you've done it. You know, it it takes those other addicts. And like you guys have both said, it's not for everybody. I'm not saying nobody go out and do any of those things. Although sugar is an addictive substance, sugar is also not good for us metabolically, addict or not. So I don't want it to seem like I'm all pro-sugar for non-addicts because I'm not. But for addicts, it's absolutely terrible. I can't do this alone. When I tried to do it alone, I found every reason to pick up and use. Everything in my life was an excuse to pick up and use. And I I, I need a group, but I need the right group. Um, I'm so happy I found you when, you when we talk. It's really wonderful to be with other people that at one of our coaches, Anna, says you can't read your own label from inside the jar. And there's so much truth in that. You need other people who can call you out honestly and compassionately with a level of understanding that just helps you see the light that much brighter that my addiction is really trying to dim. So, I love that. Because I think I would have wanted to tell my younger self that you do need to be in community. And you need help from people who've actually lived through what you're living through and have found a livable, workable, sustainable solution. Basically show you how it can be done. And I don't think I ever found anybody like that in any of the diet clubs or communities that I was involved in before. It was always yo-yo dieting up and down. Very few people who are able to maintain. And if they did maintain, um, sorry for everybody out there, tend to have a sort of um, <laughs> meanness about them, you know, like uh, they were white knuckling it as an experience and it wasn't enjoyable um, with that. So, so it's key to me is you don't have to do this alone and find those people who have found a way through, which is where, you know, um, joining recovery groups, joining um, 12-step groups, any other support groups that really resonate with you um and just hold you in place you know hold the mirror up for you so you can find out it's not a question of people saying no you're doing that wrong no you haven't followed this no you haven't done that because I think we all have an inbuilt inner resilience and an inbuilt inner knowledge and knowing we know when we're on the right track we know when things are right because if it if it's not somehow we just it doesn't feel right and that it's difficult to explain, but I really believe we have inner knowledge and an inner understanding that really will guide us. And I know from my own experience that being in recovery propels you into a different dimension. I think it says in the big book, propels you into the fourth dimension. You know, life just opens up in ways I never thought possible. I, I mean, it's profound. I, I almost want to say, no, I do want to say to my younger self, hang on in there, because actually addiction, the disease of addiction is a gift. Once you recognize it, 
and know how to manage it. That is that is just beautiful. I, I do. I'm at the point where I see addiction as a gift and and kind of what I was talking about before, just that deep inner work. It really struck me while you were talking, Kate. I think it's so interesting. So for people who have the disease of addiction, we try to do this intuitive eating and it's just not possible at all. Um, however, when you treat it like addiction and you're abstinent and your mind is clear, it really opens up your intuition in the rest of your life. It allows you to do exactly what intuitive eating is trying to do and say, you know, inherently within you what you need and what you should do. And in the food, I certainly didn't have that intuition about the food, but then it didn't let me have any intuition about the rest of my life because I was in this chaotic mind. It wasn't clear at all. So I find that so interesting that for addicts to really build that inner knowing of what we need, not just food, but the rest of our lives, it really takes that that abstinence for me. So that's interesting. Yeah. I think it's almost like it's clouded by the sugar. I think it's there, but we can't see it clearly. We lose the clarity around that. But I think I'd all want to say, and just a, a closing comment for me, is that you can. I would want to tell my younger self, it is possible we can arrest the addiction and find peace, passion and purpose in life all over again. It's not over. In fact, it's only just beginning. That's beautiful, Kate. Absolutely beautiful. Well, I, I know the assignment was not what we would tell our future self, but um, I'm going to leave it with this, that addiction is a lifelong disease and therefore recovery is also lifelong. And all these lessons that we want to tell our younger selves, I want us to carry through and to remember it today and into the future because they're wonderful lessons. And sometimes that's a little daunting, which is why we do this one day at a time and we do it together. So thank you everyone else for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed this and we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.